there's a culture war going on in this country, we can no longer remain silent on the issues that affect us all. Decisions we make now will determine our future. But how do we engage with the culture in a way that honors Jesus? How do we rise above the noise to know what is right and what is true? It's time to bring God back into the conversation. It's time to reconnect. Here's Carmen. Welcome, friends. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is The Reconnect, where we're putting God in his place, back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation. So how do we do that? How do we enter into the conversations of the day as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ? How do we actually give people a piece of the mind of Christ or the very piece of the mind of Christ instead of just giving them a piece of our mind? So that's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about the headlines of the day. We want to bring um, God's perspective to bear on those headlines in order that we can each be equipped to enter into the conversations of the day that are happening in the culture and to do so in a way that genuinely honors Jesus. So that's our goal here. Um, Thanks for being with me uh, here on the show today. You can connect with us online. The website is reconnectwithcarmen.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can let us know what you're thinking about out on Twitter. I am at Carmen LaBurge. You can use hashtag Carmen Talk. Okay, friends. So um, I'm actually going to tell you this twice today um, because not everybody listens to the whole show, and I totally understand that. We are in and out of our cars. We are uh, on and off uh, of other tasks. So I'm going to give this to you twice. Um, there is actually before the House of Representatives today, a House resolution that you're going to be interested in knowing about. Um, We have talked on this program about the U.N. Security Council Resolution 2334 um, that is basically an anti-Israel security resolution of the United Nations. And we have talked here on this program about the, uh, the resolution, and you actually have the opportunity to call your member of Congress today and support what's called a House resolution. So it's it's House Resolution 11. So House Resolution 11 is basically stating our opposition to the United Nations Security Council resolution and demanding that it be changed. Um, And so uh, if that's something that you're concerned about and want to engage in, today is actually the day, like right now, you need to call your member um, of the House of Representatives to express your opposition to the UN Security Council Resolution 2334 um, and your support for House Resolution 11. All right, I'm going to give you those same information uh, before we go to the break at the close of this half half hour so you won't forget. All right, Um, here at the top of the hour, what I really want to talk with you about is what I was shocked and stunned and horrified by um, and continue to be shocked and stunned and horrified by uh, in terms of the video that we have seen out of this incident in Chicago. Now, there's a lot going on in Chicago to shock and horrify us in terms of the homicide rate, but this is what absolutely appears to be at least a um, at least a hate crime in terms of the targeting of a disabled person, but obviously something that was politically motivated and potentially something that was racially motivated. And what I'm talking about um, is the uh, the kidnapping um, and the terrorism, the torture um, of this mentally disabled white individual by these young four black individuals who chose to live stream their assault on social media. 
Um, they have been apprehended. Uh, they are going to be um, standing before a judge today uh, where the actual charges against them um, will be read. Now, here's the question that we don't yet know the answer to yet. Will this be regarded as a hate crime? And here's the reality. There's no question in terms of the motivation of the heart that this is a hate crime. You cannot see what these people are doing and the way that they're behaving and not recognize that it is motivated out of uh out of out of hate. The question is whether or not it rises to um, the standard of the law in terms of a hate crime. And so that is one of the things that we as informed citizens, when we engage in these conversations, we don't want to just respond and say they're black. He's white. Obviously, it's racially motivated. Not an appropriate response for you and I as people who want to enter into the conversations of the day in in a way that is informed and non-hysterical and accurate. Remember, we're going to be purveyors of the truth um, no matter what. And so when we start talking about questions of whether or not something is a hate crime, we need to actually know what the definition of a hate crime is. Like, how is that defined by the law? And you say, well, when we look at the situation of Dylan Roof, who has been um, who has been uh, not only prosecuted for, but now convicted of um, nine uh, counts of of it's it's called aggravated hate and and murder in relationship to the hate crimes perpetrated in Charleston by him um, uh, at the church in the summer of 2015. So right now, Dylan Roof is in the middle of his penalty phase in relationship to those hate crimes. Well, why were those hate crimes? Not just because he had a heart of hate, right? He Actually, it's because those crimes rose to the level of the standard of the law of the definition of a hate crime. And so here is, um, here is how a hate crime is basically defined by the law. And There are nuances to this because every state in the union has its own state laws in relationship to this, and then the federal government has its laws. But here is generally how we understand a hate crime um, to, to be a hate crime. It's when the victim is selected by reason of their actual or perceived race, color, creed, religion, ancestry, gender, sexual orientation, physical or mental disability, national origin, um, or that we are perceived to be a part uh, of, a, of a group of individuals, um, regardless of what that group is. So if I'm, you know, a Dallas Cowboys fan and I choose to assault a person because I perceive them to be a part of another group that is not the Dallas Cowboy fans, it could be it can actually rise to the level of a hate crime because I targeted them. I assaulted them because of my perception of the group that they are a part of. So I think that when you take that definition, there's going to be no question that what happened in Chicago rises to the level of a hate crime. However, it may not be a hate crime because the individual who was assaulted is white. And I think that you and I tend to think about hate crimes as 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 always racially defined. And the definition of a hate crime is actually much broader than just the concept of race. So um, did these attackers choose this individual based on 
Um, his religion, well, probably not. Based on his color, we don't know. Based on his disability, quite possibly. Um, and probably most possibly. And so when you have heard the media um, be slow to say that they targeted him because of race, that these four black young people targeted this white person in this hate crime, it, it seems to be more clear that they target him because he's disabled. Now, the fact that we're having this conversation and that we're having to parse out why an individual was targeted for kidnapping and for um, uh, the the torture that this individual endured for somewhere between 24 and 48 hours while he was in the captivity of these people who chose to live stream part of their assault of him on social media. The fact that we're having this conversation makes me furrow my brow and ask one question. What in the world are we becoming? What have we become that that we think that any among us, that even these four individuals among us thought this was an okay way to treat another human being? What what depths will we not go to if we as a society are willing to go here? If people were willing to watch this live stream and not every single one of them call 911 in the middle of it. Like, what does it say about us that we as a culture would not only perpetrate this kind of uh, hateful harm against another individual, but that some among us would become consumers of it on social media? Um, You are going to hear a lot about this story in the media in the coming days and weeks and months and probably years. Eventually, we may um, hear the side of the story of the man who was kidnapped and assaulted over a period of time, but we may never hear from him. Um, It is my understanding that he has been released from the hospital, but this is a person who does not have the mental faculties that, um, that you and I have. This is a person who is mentally disabled in some way. And he has now been tortured and traumatized by members of his own community, by at least one person who he knew from school. I think that um, when we think about what, what has happened in this individual's life under our watch as the people who are members of this society... We bear some responsibility for the way these four young people who are responsible for this, um, for the way they think and for the way they chose to act. And we got to get it together, people. Um, Somehow, some way, our system isn't just failing these four. It's now failing the least among us, this disabled individual. When we don't know how to care for the least among us, Um, And we don't know how to teach compassion and empathy and concern for others in our culture. We have devolved to the kind of situation that is described in novels like, um, oh, gosh, what's the one where all the kids end up on the island together and they're trying to raise themselves? It's not good. It's not good. Um. All right, which takes me to the conversation about Dylan Roof. Um, I, 
if you have not read his chilling testimony, uh, the statements the, that he has made in the punishment phase of his trial, um, I highly recommend that you do so. I'm going to read a few selections of those statements to you now. Some of these are taken um, from uh, from the trial itself, from the penalty phase, from things that he has said in this context when he took the stand in, in himself. Um, some of these are drawn from the journals that he wrote while he was in custody after his arrest. So um, I will try to differentiate between the two. Now, the concern of the judge in Dylan Roof's case at this stage of the game, the concern of the judge for the def- is for the defendant, that the defendant get a fair trial. Um, and that the trial itself not become a spectacle. The judge is concerned that the defendant does not understand the high stakes, um, and he has been uh, he has been concerned about the complexity of the legal issues, and he's also been concerned about the competency of Dylan Roof. Well, Dylan Roof was uh, it was concluded that he is competent to stand trial, and that was um, reaffirmed yesterday that he was competent. Um, regardless of every other word that you might use to describe this individual, he has been found competent to stand trial and and actually, in this case, uh, found competent to represent himself, which is a, a conversation that we've had earlier. This is just a bad idea. You and I need outside representation, particularly when we stand not only accused but guilty before the judge. Now, the good news is uh, when we talk about eternal reality, um, although we are condemned by our st- by our sin, and uh, and there's no reason that we should be forgiven of it, um, we have an advocate. If we are in Christ, then we stand before the judge with an advocate, and that's the Holy Spirit, and we stand there um, covered in Jesus Christ, who took the penalty, took the penalty for our sin, and took the punishment uh, for it, and therefore strips all of its power away. Dylan Roof is choosing to stand in front of a worldly judge um, with really no defense. His the only defense that he brings is his own self righteousness. This is a this trial, this young man's um, self acknowledgement of where his heart is and where his mind is. Um, this is the most complete picture that we have seen in a long time of what's called total depravity. If, if you want to see how dark the darkness can get in the heart and the mind of a human being, um, you need to look no further than 22-year-old Dylan Roof. In his sworn testimony, um, he, he said, uh, I don't need to have these other people representing me, this, this, these counselors who um, have proven themselves in other cases to be very competent to uh, – get people off of the death penalty, right? That's what he's facing. He's facing the death penalty for his crimes. Um, Dylan Roof says, I don't need that. I don't need them to speak for me because the point is I'm not trying to lie to you. And his concern is apparently that he, he let these other people defend him, that they would lie on his behalf. And he doesn't want that. He wants this to, he wants the truth to come out. He went on to say, there's nothing wrong with me psychologically. This is in the competency conversation. Now, here's it's interesting that he said there's nothing wrong with me psychologically. Maybe he knows there's a lot that's wrong with him. 
And so he wanted to be sure that uh, he he modified his statement by saying there's nothing wrong with me psychologically. And maybe he's right. Maybe there is nothing wrong with him psychologically, but there's a lot that's wrong with him spiritually. And we talk about sin and the power of sin in our life to darken our mind and to um, and to strip the love out of our hearts. What we're talking about there is a spiritual uh, a spiritual issue. And it's deep. And Dylan Roof may not, uh, there may be nothing wrong with him psychologically. He's been judged now twice competent to stand trial. But this is a young man who, although psychologically competent, is obviously spiritually um, very, very sick. In a journal written six weeks after the murders in 2015, Dylan Roof wrote this. I do not regret what I did, and I am not sorry. He said, sometimes in my cell, I think about how good it would be to watch a movie. But then I remember how good it felt to do what I did. And I think it was worth it. I have, uh, I have not shed a tear for the innocent people I killed. I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I have to give my life because of a situation that never should have existed. Think about that statement. Now, what Dylan Roof may mean by that is that this situation where blacks and whites live together in community here in the United States of America is a situation that never should have existed. Maybe that's what he means when he says that coming out of his very dark way of thinking. But I want you as a Christian to think about that statement spiritually. I want you to think about that statement from an eternal perspective. I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I have to give my life because of a situation that never should have existed. Friends, this may sound strange to you, but truer words have never been spoken. It's probably not what Dylan Roof means, but truer words have never been spoken. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not a situation that should have ever existed. This is not what God intended for our relationships with one another. And yet you and I know that it only took one generation to get to the place where one human being lifted his hand against his brother and crushed him to death. This darkness is a part of who we are and has been a part of who we are for a very, very, very long time. It's called sin and it is pervasive. And there is no one in all the world who you will ever meet who is free of it in terms of their natural life. We can be free of it in terms of the supernatural gift of God in Jesus Christ, where the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. But what that means is that Christ took upon himself the full penalty, the full penalty that was due to us for our sin. So here's the reason that I bring this up today. These individuals in Chicago and Dylan Roof in Charleston, they have done horrific things. Horrific things. And their sin is great. 
But lest we think for a moment that our sin is not equally great, we need to find ourselves in the equal footing that exists for all of us at the foot of the cross. Yes, Jesus Christ died for the sins committed by Dylan Roof. Now, whether or not Dylan Roof ever turns and recognizes that and repents and confesses of his sin in a way that um, is not just filled with self-pity, but the deepest of regret for the sin he has committed against others, I don't know. But I know this. We are equally sinners, equally in need of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Our sins may not be the kinds of sins of commission, of commission, that we witnessed in this streaming live video of these young people in Chicago. And they may not be the sins of commission committed by Dylan Roof in Charleston. But our sins of omission are great. We have not, in all the ways that we might have, glorified God nor dignified humanity. We have not done all the good we might have done. And yes, we have done what is evil in the sight of the Lord. We have. So, um, I want us uh, to weep and grieve for these situations, and I want us to be activists in terms of engaging young people, um, that their realities might be altered from whatever it is that's happening in their lives that is leading them to this kind of behavior. But I also want us to take a long look in the mirror and recognize that, but for the grace of God, so go we. Okay, from the deep divisions here in the United States to the deep divisions in the Middle East, uh, I want to lift up before you two items of business that are now before the House of Representatives and the United States Senate. I've already mentioned to you House Resolution 11. Um, introduced a couple of days ago uh, by the House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Ed Royce, who is a Republican from California, and the ranking member Elliot Engel, a Democrat from New York. They introduced a resolution uh, in the House of Representatives expressing their opposition to the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2334. They're calling for it to be repealed or significantly altered, and they're doing so in support of not only the relationship of the United States to Israel and in support of the people of Israel, but in support of a two-state solution. Um, because basically the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2334 um, demolishes any hope of a two-state solution uh, in the conflict in Israel and Palestine. The second item of business is introduced by Senators Cruz and Rubio. They have co-sponsored a bill um, oh, with a third member of the Senate, whose name I don't have right in front of me. I apologize for that. Uh, to move the American embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv, the modern capital, uh, to Jerusalem, the ancient historic capital uh, of the nation of Israel. You can imagine all of the uh, all of the 
Wow, enthusiasm is the word I'll choose, the enthusiasm that people are bringing to this conversation. Um, Obviously, those who think that the state of Israel is not a legitimate state, um, that the Jewish state doesn't have a right to exist in the world today, they don't like the idea that the United States of America would recognize Jerusalem uh, as the capital of the nation of Israel, that would, they would recognize that the Jews have a claim to the land and that that claim has, uh, has existed for a long enough period of time that we can actually point to Jerusalem uh, as the city of David from which uh, the nation of Israel was governed and should be governed today. So uh, you can imagine the enthusiasm around this issue, but there you go. There are two items of business already in front of the brand new Congress, and in front of the Senate, which all just just convened a couple of days ago, um, and now we have House Resolution 11 in the House, and we have this Senate bill from Cruz and Rubio seeking to move the American embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. Hey, right after the break, we're going to be talking with a couple about the trends in the news this year. This is the Reconnect. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Reconnect with your host, Carmen LaBurge. Now, back to Carmen. Hey, friends, I'm Carmen LaBurge, and this is The Reconnect, where we're putting God in his place, back where he belongs, right in the middle of every conversation. So we are talking about what people are talking about, and today we're talking about it with the people who are talking about it. So we are trying to equip you to be an ambassador of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And one of the things that we are doing this week um, is talking with folks who pay attention to the culture, and in this case, write about the culture. So we are going to be joined during this half hour by Jim Dennison, who's the founder and CEO of the Dennison Forum on Truth and Culture. He's a senior fellow at the 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative. Um, He is a a commentator for the Dallas Morning News and Fox News and Religion News Service. He's the author of eight books. Really, he's quite accomplished, and his list of accolades goes on and on. Um, You can find him at DennisonForum.org. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Jim Dennison. Jim, welcome back to The Reconnect. Carmen, so glad to be back with you today. Thanks for the privilege. Yeah, so before we have Morgan Lee from Christianity Today join us in this conversation, I'm going to float a question out here to you to get us started on, you know, sort of these trends that we're watching, things that we can expect in the coming year. Um, Talk with us about... The rise of Donald Trump, this this administration that we are now moving into, and the conversation among American evangelicals. Isn't that an interesting thing? I know you and I have been watching this. It's uncharted territory for us. We've not yet been at a place where we had a person that some evangelicals were supporting because of his political agenda and others were opposing because of allegations relative to his own personal life. That really is a place where evangelicals are now opposed to evangelicals. I've not seen that in the 30 or 40 years that I've been doing this, where the evangelical community in America was unable to speak with a single voice on this issue. And now you have the never-Trump people that are trying to make peace with those that were supportive of, of the Trump movement from the beginning, and it really is unprecedented for us. It's hard to predict how that's ultimately going to turnout, although my prediction would be that those that were opposed to Trump and raised relative to personal issues will be supportive of his presidency to the degree that his presidency advances the issues that most matter to them, whether that has to do with abortion or same-sex marriage or support for Israel or issues that are really critical to them. They'll put the past behind and they'll support his leadership to the degree that they agree with his agenda. 
So that's a little bit of a support where you can, but not just saying I just blanketly without qualification support this individual, which sounds to me like the rational place for a Christian to always be in relationship to a politician. Couldn't agree more. Whether that's Russell Moore or Al Mohler, whoever I'm speaking of, that was in the never Trump who's going to try to support him relative to particular issues, that's where we should always be. Our ultimate allegiance always, as we know, is to the Lord Jesus. He's the only one that we serve unconditionally. And other than that, we should be like the Berean Christians who searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so and measured everything man says by what God says. That's always the healthiest position to be in, whether it has to do with a political leader or what I'm saying to you right now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we're going to have Morgan Lee join us now. She's a reporter for Christianity Today. She covers the issues of the day. She hosts a podcast called Quick to Listen, and you can follow Morgan on Twitter. I'm going to spell it out for you because I actually had to look up why why her Twitter handle is what it is, and I'll let you do the same. But it is M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. So Morgan Lee from Christianity Today, welcome back to The Reconnect. Hey, Carmen. Hey, Jim. How are you guys? Great. Good well, to be with you today. We're great. I'm going to ask the racial question to you, Morgan, um, because I know that these are two storylines that you are interested in and that you follow. Let's talk about, again, let's stick with the evangelical Christian conversation in America related to the election. So 81 percent of uh, of white evangelical Christians in the United States are counted as among those who voted for Donald Trump. And yet that has stimulated, I will use that word, um, a robust conversation uh, among evangelical Christians in terms of race. So can you just speak into that and why that's a story that you think we're going to need to be following in this year? So among particular sectors of evangelicals, you never want to speak too broadly about them, I would say that in the past, um, the past couple of years, potentially since Ferguson, which was in 2014, um, there has been an increased awareness of racial justice being something that Christians need to react um, more vehemently and more proactively towards. And so we've seen that whether the ERLC had a summit on racial justice um, to increase attention, maybe in the coverage of my own magazine, for instance, the number of articles that have come up, I, different things that I've read on the Gospel Coalition with regards to the series that they've had. Um, and so there's been in some ways a, a renewed consciousness about race um, that I, I don't want to speak out of turn here with regards to how people of color have felt all the way, but I do think that this has been, that has been, this has been in the news more, um, and that I think some Christians of color were optimistic um, that this renewed attention would mean um, a real big distancing of evangelicals from Trump, who they felt um, did try to foment um, racial animosity at various times during his campaign. And so when this 81% of white evangelical number, um, which is taken from the exit polls after the campaign came out, um, it really kind of turned things back in, in many ways from, from leaders that I talked to and leaders that spoke with my magazine um, with regards to the amount that they felt invested in the evangelical movement. And so at this point, it does make me wonder what type of desire to work together is there between the evangelicals of color and white evangelicals surely there are white evangelicals who still really care about these issues um but you know to what extent will this be a priority how will trust be rebuilt if people are interested in rebuilding trust um and will there be more unity or more splintering ultimately 
Well, I think you have both. Um, and again, let me remind our listeners, we're talking with Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum and Morgan Lee of Christianity Today. I think you've actually both highlighted what I think is is going to be the big story for evangelicals in this year. And it is this question of of how it's going to be defined and who's going to be counted among it. So if we've got, you know, evangelicals uh, who see themselves at very different places in terms of the incoming president, um, and we have then um, evangelicals who come from different um, racial backgrounds and all desiring, in my view, all desiring to engage the culture in in ways that are going to be positively transformative. And I think that the racial conversation is one of those conversations that, Morgan, as you pointed to, you know, within the last couple of years, there does there seems to have been this like rising tide. It's been encouraging to see the desire um, of white evangelicals to actually share their platform with, to raise the profile of, to engage in actual real conversation with. Um, you know, people of color who come from evangelical communities as well and to get into that conversation. What does that look like and what does that mean? So um, I think all of that has been disrupted. And we are looking at, I think, a very different um, evangelical landscape going forward. And so I'm not going to ask any of us to divine what we uh, what we imagine that's going to be. I think that is one of the storylines, though, um, that we will see unfolding in the year ahead. Hey Jim, d- jumping back to you, let's um, let's talk a little bit about Israel. Um, I just shared with with our listeners b- prior to the break that um, there's already a House resolution um, related to uh, undoing what the UN Security Council has done in relationship to uh, uh, the secure UN Security Resolution 2334. And there's now already business in front of the United States Senate about uh, moving the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Obviously, all of those things are, um, there's a wide variety of opinions about all of that. Tell us from your perspective, sort of what that conversation might look like among um, Christians in America in relationship to what's happening in Israel. Yeah, terrific question. That's an issue of enormous interest to me. We're actually putting up a 25-page paper on that subject right now on our website that we'll have up available Fantastic. Uh, by tomorrow. Yeah, good timing. Yeah, I appreciate the conversation. I've been to Israel 25 times myself over the years, lead uh, study tours over there two or three times a year, and have a lot of interest in the geopolitics of that, actually teach in that area, Dallas Baptist University. And so it's something I have a lot of interest in, gave a talk on that just this morning. So to try to do a real short version on that relative to American evangelicals, as with Donald Trump, we have two schools of thought here. You have the dispensational approach that believes that the creation of Israel in 1948 was a fulfillment of prophecy and that therefore God judges nations as they judge Israel. And American evangelicals would want America to side with Israel relative to moving the embassy to Jerusalem, relative to perhaps annexing the West Bank, relative to moving from a two-state solution to a one-state solution, rebuilding the biblical Judea and Samaria, and not understanding the need for an independent Palestinian nation. And so you'd have this evangelical movement that's been there for a long time. You think of people like John Hagee in San Antonio and other leaders that have been very outspoken in their belief that that's where America needs to be aligned with Israel, and God will bless America to the degree that we bless Israel in that context. Then you have other evangelicals in America who disagree with everything I just said. They don't believe that 1948 is a fulfillment of prophecy. They don't look at Revelation necessarily in that way. They see Israel as a very critical nation to America. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. It's a critical military 
partner, but they believe we ought to be able to hold them accountable to their previous decisions as regards a two-state solution and the 67 Green Line and, and reserving uh, Jerusalem for final solution status and not preempting that by moving our embassy there before there's a Palestinian solution. And so you're seeing evangelicals on both sides of this issue as well as regards the degree to which they see the modern state of Israel as a fulfillment of God's plan for the ages. All right. Well, that is an excellent synopsis. There's no way I could have done that better myself. So uh, everybody should you should clip that two and a half minutes and like put it in your put it in your pocket um, to to use frequently, because this is a conversation that we are going to as Christians have to be prepared to have. Um, Most people have not thought thought long and hard about why they think the way they think about the the issue issues related to Israel um, and the Palestinians. Um, and so thank you for that awesome summary, Jim. Um, Morgan, can we can you're a millennial and let's just uh, Jim and I will just admit we are not. And so um, when when we think about millennial Christians, and this is a group of people that is incredibly diverse, um, millennials themselves are the most diverse generation we've ever seen, um, and and then those millennials who consider themselves Christians are incredibly diverse, and evangelicals who millennials um, who are Christians are are equally as diverse. How do you feel? Um, what are what are some of the possibilities maybe for how the conversation might change as more millennials uh, are actually engaged in these conversations, both about persecution and issues like Israel-Palestine and racial justice. Just just speak into that and give us a little forecast and maybe some hope for the future. Well, I will say that as a millennial, I have met plenty of other millennials who are really passionate Um, about many of the causes of previous generations. And I guess a question um, is, you know, there's always two questions, right? You know, whether people agree on outcomes but disagree on strategies or if they just kind of diverge altogether. Um, And so, you know, in in some respect, there's always going to be different different processes, whether it's different tactics for getting people to church or get people in the door and getting them attracted to to the faith. you know, I'm just trying to think of some of the, the most contentious issues out there where evangelicals um, may diverge when it comes to comes to generational things. You know, certainly LGBT issues is one of going to be one of those issues that I'm going to be very curious to see um, when my generation is within 20 years, um, whether it will be something where the views of um, evangelicals look very identical um, to the rest of the world on this issue, which would not surprise me given that there are um, – I would say most, there are more people that are out and more millennials are likely to be friends with people that are LGBT. Um, but at the same time, I, there are a fair number of churches, and the churches that are growing right now are often the ones that are very orthodox on these issues. Um, and so that's something that, I, that I'm, yeah, I'm very curious to see how that goes. Um, another issue would be immigration. Um, and I'm also curious about what that will look like. You were talking about our generation being the most diverse, and partially that's because of just different increases in immigration, whether it's from Asia um, or Latin America. Um, But overall, you know, I sense a a strong interest. I guess my big question is how will evangelicals, um, or sorry, evangelical millennials relate to institutions or to what Mm. extent will they be frustrated with institutions and be disenchanted 
you know, whether it's an institution like I work for, Christianity Today, um, Christian colleges, other groups that were used to being around for a long time, and if they will be frustrated with the processes and systems and how long it takes to kind of sometimes move change in, into those places um, and kind of want to go about making their own thing um, or step outside from that. That, that's interesting. It's a great observation in terms of the institutional conversation, because I also think that none of us knows exactly what the Trump effect is going to be on any or all of our institutions. And so, um, you know, I, I think that there is a, a pretty mammoth shift um, that's about to take place. I just think that it's unpredictable in terms of exactly which direction uh, those shifts are going to go. Hey, Jim Dennison of the Dennison Forum and Morgan Lee of Christianity Today, it has been fun to talk to you all in conversation with each other uh, on these issues that are in front of us in 2017 and beyond. Thank you for the ministry that each of you has. You guys can follow Jim Dennison um, on Twitter at Jim Dennison or at Dennison Forum, and you can find him online. And actually, you can get his free daily column uh, at DennisonForum.org. You can find Morgan Lee at Christianity Today, and you can follow her on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. And her podcast is Quick to listen. Jim and Morgan, thank you so much. So glad to be with you today, Carmen. Thanks so much. God bless, Morgan. Take care. All right, friends. So that is, uh, this is an example. This is how you have a conversation about what's happening in the world um, with people who share your concerns, but maybe not exactly your viewpoint. Um, they bring their expertise. They bring their experiences. They are watching things from a different perspective simply because they're different people. Um, and so I just encourage you just to reach out to folks and say, hey, can I have a conversation with you about what I'm reading in the newspaper today? Um, can I have a conversation with you about what I heard on the radio? Um, can I have a conversation with you? Um, I want to know what you're thinking about this. You're a millennial. I'm not a millennial. Or I'm a millennial. You're not a millennial. However that goes. Um, and trust me when I tell you, people are really very open to conversation. We just have to be open to people. And so um, let me encourage you to uh, maybe make a list of the of the trends, of the stories, of the questions that you have uh, and bring those into conversations and just say, hey, I know that you guys, you know, you're you're over here and you're talking about this. But I got a, I got a question. It's like this burning question. You know, what are we going to do about criminal justice in the United States of America? And People might look at you and think to themselves, that's a bigger topic than we were really prepared to discuss. We were talking about whether or not we were going to have, you know, Cheetos or Lay's potato chips with our sandwiches. And you are the person that God sent into that conversation to change the conversation, right? We need to be thinking about what we are thinking about. We need to be developing the mind of Christ in the matters of the day. And then we need to be getting off the sidelines and into the discussion, all right. So people are out there talking about all the things that I just talked with Jim and Morgan about. Um, and they're certainly talking about Israel. What is your personal position on that? And why do you hold it? Do, do you have you even spent enough time studying what the scripture says about Israel to know what you think? Um, have you just adopted the the position of the last person you heard talk about it or some commentator on TV or some uh, you know, I was going to say, God forbid, person on the radio, but then that doesn't sound quite right. Okay, so uh, you've heard my encouragement to you. You know that we're working our way down the, the list of stories and trends that we think 
are emerging this year in 2017 that we find of great interest. And now it's already past time for me to go below the fold. And I got great stuff for you today below the fold. So um, I'm just going to grab these two stories for you. Um, In Nashville, Tennessee... A young mom who's 29 years old, she's already survived cancer once. She's got uh, two little kids, and um, and she got pregnant, which is, like, totally exciting, right? And she was in remission. Uh, she was cancer-free at the time. And she didn't just get pregnant. She she was pregnant with quadruples. Uh, that's four babies in case you're, you know, you haven't done that, uh, done that linguistic course lately. Um, so she's pregnant with quadruples, and during her pregnancy... Uh, it, they diagnosed her that her cancer um, had uh, had returned. And so um, this is a woman who uh, she and her husband had, oh, you know, obviously profound um, excitement about the birth, uh, the impending birth of their four babies, but also what she describes as um, pretty nerve-wracking. Um, and and she, I want to just read to you some of the things that this young woman um, has said. Um, when her Hodgkin's lymphoma returned and she recognized that uh, she was going to need to return to chemotherapy after the birth of these babies, but that she was going to need to see them through to their birth before she did that. And so that's basically what this story is all about. Um, and those four babies are currently in the in the NICU at uh, Vanderbilt Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. And this young couple, uh, the Gaytons, I'll just tell you, I just think that we need to be praying for them. Uh, her husband is uh, in uh, in the service, in the armed services, based at Fort Campbell. Her name is uh, Kayla. And when you think this year, I want at any point this year, at any time this year, that you're thinking to yourself that you've got it tough, I want you to lift this young man and this young woman, this young couple and their six kids, I want you to lift them up in prayer. Um, When you think you've got it tough, I want you to put yourself empathetically in the shoes of a 29-year-old mom of quadruplets, who's also got two other little kids, and in the shoes of her sweet husband, who is one of our service members, and um, and in the context of the next uh, rounds, many, many rounds of chemotherapy that she now faces to treat her Hodgkin's lymphoma. When you think you've got it tough on a day when you're not feeling too great, on a day when it seems like you've got um, a lot a, a lot to take care of or that baby is crying or that little kid needs something or your spouse is demanding or your body aches, I want you to think about this couple and I want you to lift them up in prayer. Um, that's certainly what I am going to be doing. Uh, prayers are ascending um, from from me, certainly, for this uh, for this young couple and their family. Um, now, what they need, certainly, and where they have placed themselves is absolutely in the holy, competent hands of the living God. Um, they, they are Christians, and they are quick to um, acknowledge the sovereignty of God over their lives um, and, and are trusting him for healing. They are trusting him for the health of their children um, and for the living of these days. And 
so that leads me to this second story, which I just, you know, it's just one of those. It's just like so fantastical. You just feel like you got to grab it and read it because some days we just need some encouragement. There's a lot of bad news out there right now. There's a lot of hard news out there right now. Um, and sometimes I just think we need to be reminded that we're not alone. And so I grabbed this off of Faithwire. You know that Faithwire is my like good news go to hub of information. So Faithwire, uh, I pulled this. It says woman claims she's seen angels and she's not alone. Here's her incredible story. So essentially, this is a story about a woman um, who, when she was uh, standing in the context of the choir, she lives in the UK, in the United Kingdom, and she was uh, standing in the choir and she was singing. And um, here's what it says. I felt the pressure of what seemed like a human hand touching my own. Now, I was standing on the edge of the choir, and so I assumed that the lady Deborah, who had been playing the organ, had come over to join us and thought nothing of it. Now, other people who have reported the same thing, right, the music never stopped. So either Deborah got up and is now standing um, standing next to, uh, next to this woman and is actually um, touching her hand, and the organ is somehow miraculously continuing to play itself. Or Deborah never got up from the organ and someone else is now standing there at the edge of the choir, um, very physically present, Jones, uh, Jones reports in this, uh, in this piece. She says, the hand then left mine. A few minutes later, I opened my eyes and I was surprised to see Deborah still sitting at the organ. Um, she was not there beside me. So after the service, fellow, uh, a fellow congregant actually reported that they saw this angel standing next to her, that an angel had touched her hand. Um, and this is not this woman's only reported experience of seeing an angel. She's actually seen um, uh, angels uh, hovering in the bedroom over her husband, which would be like both comforting and terrifying all at once if you imagine what uh, that experience might be like. Now, you will be comforted to know that she says that um, she was awake when these angels appeared in their bedroom. And she says they were beautiful beings with wings dressed in white. And she says what struck me most was the hair. Their hair was gold and it shone and they were beautiful. And they disappeared through the headboard. And it always makes me laugh because I know it sounds a bit silly, but it really happened. All right, folks, there are angels among us. There's no reason to think that God is not as actively working in the world today through the presence of powerful angelic forces as he has throughout history. The question is whether or not we believe it and therefore have the opportunity to see it. So that's what I'll put up before you today. Uh, Give God all the glory that he deserves. This is The Reconnect. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Join me online, reconnectwithcarmen.com. The Reconnect is brought to you by the Presbyterian Lay Committee. To continue the conversation and become part of the Reconnect community, visit reconnectwithcarmen.com.